Well, good morning. I invite you to open your Bibles to the New Testament epistle of Philippians, to Philippians chapter 2. When I have the opportunity to fill this pulpit, I've been working my way through this epistle, and I'm on schedule to finish around my 98th birthday, so uh, we need to get busy here. So we will be spending our time today in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. If you're using a pew Bible, it is found on page 1,248, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. If we look back in history, we can see that there has been distinct times in which the church has faced extreme challenges, challenges that threaten to shake the church to its core. Challenges from outside of the church, but also from inside of the church that threaten to disrupt the unity of God's people. Challenges that threaten to render the church ineffective in its gospel message. And it seems to be that this is one of the most urgent problems facing the church today. As we consider the entire situation that we find ourselves in as Christians, as we contemplate the tragic state of our society, we should see things as they are. And we see our society being torn apart, torn apart by fear and by panic. The fear that causes people to turn on one another, to not trust one another, to question one's motives, the tendency to divide up into sections, in, into groups, each one only concerned about itself and its own rights and privileges and demands, a fear that produces disunity. And the questions that arise at once are this. What has the Christian church to say about all of this? What is the message of the church? What is the message of the gospel? What exactly have we who claim to be Christians to say in this very special situation? How are we to act in the church as God's people in the midst of a world that is in disunity because of fear and panic? The New Testament says clearly that those in the world are lost and never will know a state of peace, never will know a state of unity until such certain mighty and dramatic events take part in the heart of a person. There is something in a person which is so profoundly wrong that it tends to lead to trouble and disunity, not only in the world, but even in the church itself. The New Testament also clearly says that the church is something formed by God. It consists of new men and new women who have been regenerated. Yet, according to the Bible, there is something so radically wrong in man that there is even danger of disunity 
entering into the life of the church. So we need to examine carefully what the apostle is about to teach us in this passage concerning a vital need in the church today, unity. In verses 1 through 4, Paul will show us how the unity of God's people is based on the humility of the heart. On the humility of the heart. Then in verses 5 through 8, in one of the most magnificent sections of the Bible, he will set before us Christ Jesus as both our source and model of true humility. So let's keep our Bibles open and carefully consider what the Spirit of God through the words of Paul is teaching us on how we as Christians are to conduct ourselves in a message I have titled, The Heart of the Matter. Let us read Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As Paul uses the word so to begin verse 1, he is making a transition. So it makes us stop and look back at what preceded this section of Scripture. And if you recall from the last time we studied verses 27 through 30 of chapter 1, Paul emphasized the need for the Philippians as citizens of heaven to display fearless courage in the face of opposition and suffering that they were sure to face from the world. He encouraged them to be united as a church. Look at the verses. To stand firm in the face of threats from the enemies of the gospel, but also to stand together, shoulder to shoulder, displaying mutual love and support. And in the passage before us today, the apostle turns his focus from the church as a whole to their individual relationships with each other. Some commentators believe that since Paul spends a considerable amount of time on the topic of unity, that there must have been a division in the Philippian church, such as the strong division he addressed in his letter to the church in Corinth. But I see no evidence of that in this letter, even though in chapter 4, he does call out two women in the church who were quarreling with one another. But Paul, in his apostolic wisdom, 
knew that it is a temptation for Christians to regard themselves as more important than their brothers and sisters, being tempted to focus on their own concerns and agendas, and in doing so, neglecting those around them who are in need, thereby undermining the unity of the church. And so he is teaching the Philippians and you and me that unity in our fellowship is absolutely essential to our gospel message. As Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so here the Apostle Paul is emphasizing what Jesus said, that unity in our fellowship for the gospel is essential as we face a hostile world. If those in the world are to be convicted of their sin, if those in the world are to be convinced of their need for a savior, we who are in the church must live in unity. In other words, if we are not living in unity, the gospel message is stained. So it is important that we understand this in the church today. The gospel is a message of peace and reconciliation with God. If we are proclaiming that Christ has reconciled us to God, but we are not reconciled to one another, if we are divided, how then can an unbeliever believe our message? They cannot. So unity in the church was vitally important to Paul. He has already dealt with it at the end of chapter 1, and now he returns to it in chapter 2. It wasn't enough for him to say it once. He must say it again in a somewhat different manner. And when something is repeated in the Bible, it, is not a, it not only underlines its importance, but it lifts it to a higher level. Unity of Christians is not only a useful weapon against a hostile world, as Paul pointed out in chapter 1. It also is the essence of the Christian life. Unity is the way a Christian manifests outwardly what has happened to him inwardly. It is the outward display of what the gospel has done to the mind, heart, and soul of a person. Unity is the mark of a people who have been transformed by the gospel. And so here we see Paul in prison, chained to a guard, falsely accused, awaiting an uncertain future, maybe even death. And he says, Make my joy complete. Be united for the sake of the gospel. So what kind of unity is Paul speaking of? Paul is not the type of man to say something vague and then leave it. Here, as he does in all his letters, he gives the doctrine, and then he follows with the duties the doctrine demands. And what he will point out to us is this. Before the unity of a church as a whole can be attained, there are certain things which must be true 
about the individuals who were called to live in unity. So first, he lays down the doctrine by issuing four if statements. Let's read verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. So Paul is reminding the Christian that the foundation of their unity is found in the activity of the Trinity, of the triune God, wherein they are now in Christ. They experience the reality of the Father's love, and they have been brought into a fellowship by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us look at these three blessings closer. First blessing, being united with Christ. In essence, Paul is asking the Philippians and asking you and me, do you not really understand what it means to be in Christ? To be in Christ is to share all the blessings that he has attained and given to us. It encompasses the entire spectrum of what it means to be a Christian. That we have been chosen in Christ before the ages began. That we have died to the reign of sin and been raised to a new life in him. It will ultimately mean that we will share a life everlasting in a new creation where we will see him face to face. An endless time of unceasing and unbridled joy. If you are in Christ, there is encouragement which you experience. Second blessing, comfort from love of the Father. Again he asks, had they not felt the comfort of the Father? Had they not experienced the love of the Father for them? The Apostle John writes, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And the third blessing, participation in the spirit. Did they not know, do we not know, that the Holy Spirit called them into a partnership? Not only with the triune God, but also into a fellowship with each other. If they had been brought into a participation, if they had been placed into a fellowship by the power of the Spirit, an unbreakable fellowship with the triune God, how can they live in any other way than united fellowship with each other? The New Testament teaches us that each person of the Godhead plays a distinct role in salvation. The Father planned the Son purchased, and the Spirit preserves. And what Paul is teaching us here is that the work of the Trinity does not stop at salvation. Each and every Christian has the Spirit of God living and working in them. In his role in salvation, the Spirit of God convicts people of sin, or no one would be saved. The Holy Spirit regenerates people, or no one would be transformed. The Holy Spirit enables people because no one can come to God on their own. They can't even repent on their own. 
But he also continues his work after salvation. The Holy Spirit works in the lives of God's people because they can't serve God on their own. They can't love God on their own. They can't worship God on their own. They can't obey God on their own. The Spirit of God also enables you to love other people with the love of God because you can't do it on your own. You have to be enabled by the Spirit of God to be in unity with one another. So here is Paul's point as he appeals for unity. Despite our own sinful self-centeredness, the preoccupation with our own ideas, our own agendas, our own convenience and comfort that is so instinctive to our fallen nature. The strongest reasons for us to be in unity, to love and honor each other selflessly, is to remember the encouragement, love, and partnership so graciously poured out on us by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So in verse 1, we see the actions of the three persons of the Trinity in the life of every believer. We have been adopted into the family of God. So being in the family, shouldn't we display the family characteristics? Which leads us to the fourth blessing. Being in the family, we display the characteristics of affection and sympathy. This affection and sympathy is the outward manifestation of the inward work of the triune God in the heart of the believer. It is shown by a true concern for others, specifically others in our Christian fellowship. Being in Christ, we have experienced the loving concern which has reached out to us in our greatest need. From the love of the Father, we have found deep comfort reaching out to us in our sorrow and pain. And as we've been placed into a fellowship by the Spirit who enables us to love each other with the love that the three persons of the Trinity have for one another. So the person saved by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is made into a new creature with a new heart, with new desires, and new sensitivities which stimulates them onto a new life with new relationships. Everything is new. A new life that is marked by love for others and displayed by comforting, serving, and providing for those who are in need in the fellowship of believers. Have we not, as individual Christians, experienced this new life of fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ? Have we not, as a church family, experienced this new life of love and caring for one another in true fellowship? What a joy it is to gather today as a church family. What a blessing we have received over these last two years. And it is all generated by the work of the Trinity. So we see in verse 1 the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so Paul is saying, you have experienced and been blessed by all of this. But 
with such blessings comes responsibilities. So secondly, Paul gives us the then statements. The doctrine of verse 1 leads to the duties in verse 2. If these things are true, then certain responsibilities must follow. Since we have received all these blessings from the Godhead, then we must live in a certain manner to attain unity. Verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now you would think that the unity of believers would naturally flow out of the abundant blessings that we have received from God. And in this case, it's very interesting because the Philippians were obviously a deeply committed group of Christians. They knew their doctrine. But Paul understood that there is a potential amongst the believers in Philippi as well as with all believers. To assume to live a gospel-centered life is just a matter of knowing the right doctrine. But to live a gospel life means more than having your theology right. It means living your theology out in a life marked by love, graciousness, and humility. And we see in verse 2 that living such a life only comes with effort on the part of the believer. Effort through obedience and deliberate cultivation. Notice that he is concerned with the believer's mind. He mentions it twice. Their love and their accord. Those things that involve the inner attitude of the Christian. So first, first of all, Paul is emphasizing a unity of minds. Be of the same mind. Be of one mind. Literally, think the same thing. Think the one thing. In other words, Christians should have a oneness of conviction. We must be unified in what we think and what we believe. We must be unified in our doctrine. So as we grow together in our knowledge of God's word, we will also grow together in unity. As we see the truth more clearly, we will see eye to eye more often. That is why the teaching and preaching of the word of God is so important to the church. As Paul says to the Ephesians, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God's goal for us in unity is founded on sound doctrine so that we may mature into Christ-likeness so the apostle urges us to be of the same mind, have one mind. But as we said before, we must not stop with unity and doctrine. It goes beyond what we believe is true. We must display our unity in love. 
verse 2, having the same love. To agree theologically. God actually calls you to care for each other deeply with a love that binds you together so that even differing opinions cannot tear you apart. So what he is pointing out to us is this. Even though outside pressures and external persecutions can result in cracks in relationships within the church, the far more greater enemy to Christian unity does not lie outside the church, but lies within each one of our hearts. We are to have love for one another. And what kind of love is this? It is a love that is identical to God's love. It is identical to the love that Trinity has for one another. It is agape love. A love not based on emotion or feelings, but a love that is sacrificial. A love that, which is unconditional. His own love that he gave us when we first came to Christ. The Apostle John wrote, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. It is this agape love, a gift from God, that enables us to act and react as he would do. So we are to have a unity of mind, a unity in love, and also a unity of, verse 2, accord. Literally, we are to be like-souled with one spirit and one purpose. We are to live in selfless humility with fellow believers. So Paul then moves from his exhortation to unity in verse 2 to the attitudes and the, and the desires that can either build up or destroy our unity in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In verse 3, we find an admonition against the wrong desire, selfish ambition, prompted by a wrong attitude, conceit, the combination of which will surely damage unity within the body of Christ. Selfish ambition can also be described as greed. It is produced by conceit, which can also be described as pride or self-centeredness. Practically, it shows itself by a desire for more stuff for yourself while being indifferent to the needs of those around you, or by demanding your own way without listening to and accepting the ideas of others, or by ex expecting others to serve you instead of you looking for ways to serve them. And all that is true. But here Paul is linking selfish ambition with conceit. The act of serving, but serving out of pride. 
So the problem Paul is specifically addressing here is the natural tendency in our hearts to seek recognition and honor for what we do as we serve in the church. So he is challenging us to ask ourselves, why do I serve? Am I driven by impure motives even when I'm serving others? Am I self-serving while serving, hoping to be noticed and praised? Am I offended when I'm not noticed or when my brilliant ideas aren't accepted? He's pointing out a real danger here. When our hearts cherish recognition and honor, but if our agenda is not adopted, if our ideas are put on the back burner, if someone disagrees with our plans, when we are easily insulted, it tends to breed resentment in the heart, and we will find ourselves undermining the unity of the church. And so what does the apostle tell us to do to, do to replace such impure attitudes and desires that are so natural to our humanness? We're to replace them with the most unnatural attitude and desire of all. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. This doesn't come automatic to the Christian. It must be worked out. It takes effort. Part of our battle is rooted in our old selfish human nature. One of the greatest stumbling blocks in our Christian lives isn't hate for one another. It's our conceit. It's our self-love. It's our pride. If we are to be unified in Christ, we cannot insist on our own way and then pout or rebel when we don't get it. Instead, we need to live in humility. The culture of Paul's day despised humility. It would, they considered humility to be act of, an act of weakness done by somebody with no self-worth. It's exactly the same in our culture today. Our culture embraces the me-first attitude. It's not so with God. And it should not be so with God's people. Peter writes, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This raises the question, How do I shed my pride and put on humility? Again, it is a gift given by God's grace. When God's grace enters into our lives, it begins to develop a humble attitude towards others. We begin to regard the good for others with the same intensity we once regarded ourselves. We begin to care for them, love them, and provide for their needs. We put their needs before our own. It's truly a transformation authored by God himself. Have you not seen that in your own life? This transformation is a process in the Christian sanctification. When you first come to faith in Christ and you marvel at the fact that you have received grace upon grace 
from the creator of the universe. When you see that the Lord of glory humbled himself by going to the cross, all done for you, you increasingly become more humble and you show it by selflessly serving those around you. It is a mark of true saving faith. So before we come to one of the most magnificent passages in all of scripture, let's reflect on what the apostle has been saying to us. Let's talk about the importance of fellowship within the church because there are many unbiblical attitudes about fellowship within the church today. We must begin with the foundation of our fellowship. It is found in the Trinity. That God exists as three persons in the Godhead points to the truth that he is relational. And within that relationship, there is perfect and eternal love. We are created in his image, which means in part that we are created for relationship with God and with each other in which we display the same love. The unity that we share together as a church family should reflect the unity of the Trinity. Christianity is relational in the most intense, in the most spiritual, in the most eternal way. So it should be in the life of the church. Christians should treat fellow believers as brothers and sisters, held together by spiritual bonds more intimate and enduring than even the bonds of our biological families. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. But many people think it's unimportant to engage in fellowship found in the church. That is unbiblical. The New Testament knows nothing about a believer who is not identified with a local assembly of saints. Nothing. And nothing about who is not in fellowship with the saints. You join together with your brothers and sisters in fellowship for many reasons. For your own soul's sake. To be fed the word of God. To build strong relationships. For the strengthening of the body. Giving honor to the Lord. Jointly enjoying his blessings. Demonstrating his power. Giving witness to the world. And becoming increasingly like him. It can only be found in the fellowship of the local church. The Holy Spirit of God did not call you into the family of God to be a stranger. You were called into a fellowship, not into isolation. To receive the gift of fellowship, but to fail to exercise it, is a denial of saving truth and perhaps even denial of true saving faith. But here an objection will immediately arise. Immediately. Some may say, I don't need fellowship with a church family. I'm loving Christ on my own terms, in my own place, all by, all by myself. 
That is what I will call super spirituality. It states, my only concern is to give joy to Christ, not to other people. That is my only obligation. That, loved ones, is absolutely false. Hear the words of Jesus. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. He speaks of agape love, selfish, unconditional, sacrificial love. It's a type of love Jesus had for his father and has for his followers. The kind of love Christians are to have for one another. It is a love which demonstrates itself not only in words but in deeds. It is only there that the oneness of Christianity, fellowship, can be found. Jesus calls to display agape love to one another. What a test this is of our claim to be in the body of Christ. Do you have a selfish, unconditional, sacrificial love for those around you here today? Do you seek to selflessly serve others or do you seek to fulfill your own desires? In plain words, are you a giver or a taker? We must jettison the idea that the church exists to meet the needs of every individual. Instead, we must embrace the truth that we exist to serve God's kingdom and God's people in the local church in love. Again, hear the words of Jesus. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Agape love should be burning brightly in the fellowship of the local church and in complete contrast to the darkness found in an unregenerate soul. When we love one another in such a way, the gospel shines and our Lord is glorified. What an impact true fellowship in the church can have upon the world. Eye to eye, hand to hand, cheek to cheek fellowship only found in the gathering of the church. Not digital, not digital, but personal. That is how God designed it. From Hebrews 10, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day draw near. MacArthur on this subject, quote, the whole of Christian living is loving God and loving the people around you. That is not complicated. The Christian viewpoint is this. What can I do to bring someone joy and spiritual benefit? 
Whatever that is, I want to do that. I want to do that all the time and never anything but that. So it is a work of constant selfless giving for the spiritual benefit of your brother and sister in Christ. No gimmicks, no falseness, just true selfless love shown in sacrificial service. Loving Christ as you love others. And listen, this cannot be done if you are absent from the church. It can only be done in communion with the Lord in his word and with his people, unquote. So now beginning in verse five, Paul turns to our example of serving one another in humble agape love, our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse five, the apostle exhorts us to have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The story of the cross is told in the four gospels. The meaning of the cross is the theme of the epistles, but the verses that follow constitute one of the great New Testament passages on the person and work of Christ. But as we begin to look at this passage, what many scholars believe to be a poem or a song sung by the early church, maybe even written by Paul, we need to remember why the apostle gives it to us. It is not only to inform us, but it is to change our lives. He brings it to us with a purpose in mind that we would think like and have the attitude of our Lord. This is a very unique passage in the Bible. As one commentator notes, quote, Paul unfolds the cross as seen through the eyes of the crucified and allows us to enter into the mind of Christ. We tread, therefore, on very holy ground indeed, unquote. First of all, notice the great change. Verse 6, though he was in the form of God. The Greek word used for form, morphe, is found only here in the New Testament. In this context, it means one who possessed inwardly and displayed outwardly the very nature of God. It is obviously speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ before his incarnation. And now the great change. He who is in the form of God became, verse 8, obedient to the point of death. The eternal Lord of glory came to die. The early church sung of this. We do too in one of our favorite hymns, and can it be? We sing in verse 2, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design?" Secondly, notice his voluntary decision. There is a great emphasis in the passage that this all came about by our Lord's voluntary decision. And in this, 
we begin to enter the mind of Christ. Verse 7 says he emptied himself. And verse 8 says he humbled himself. It was his personal decision to do so. And he acted accordingly. The humility shown by our Lord was voluntary. He sought to do it. Thirdly, notice his descent in humiliation. Back to verse 6. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Certainly as God, Jesus Christ did not need anything. He had all the glory and praise of heaven. He created and reigns over the universe. His status gave him every right to demand that others serve him. But verse 6 states an amazing fact. He did not consider his equality with God as something to be selfishly held on to. He did not think of himself, but he thought of others. As our Lord said in Mark 10, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the mind of Christ. Even though he was God with all the rights and privileges that naturally flow from that, he has a humble attitude. An attitude that says, I cannot keep my rights and privileges for myself. I must use them for others, and I will pay whatever price is necessary. He was willing to come to our fallen, helpless world on our behalf, and he did so willingly. He was not under no obligation to do so. His descent continues downward, verse 7. But emptying himself, or in some translations, made himself nothing. The question is, of what did Jesus empty himself? Did he lay aside his deity? Did he lay aside his eternal attributes? It cannot be. If God laid aside one of his attributes... The unchangeable undergoes a change. The immutable undergoes a mutation. The infinite becomes finite. He as God would cease to exist. The writer of Hebrews tells us that he is the creator and he upholds the universe by his word of power. If God ceased to exist, it would be the instantaneous end of the universe. So he could not have laid aside his deity. The Bible tells us he was God in human flesh. He said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He said, no one needs to tell me what is in the heart of man. I know what is in the heart of man. In the Gospel of John, he recognizes Nathaniel, whom he had never met, because he is omniscient. He restores life. He heals the sick. He restores limbs to function. 
So never does it intend to mean that he set aside his deity and became something less than God. God cannot stop being God and still be God. Nevertheless, the Apostle Paul does speak of Christ emptying himself of something. What he emptied himself was not his deity, not his divine attributes, but his prerogatives, his glory, his rights, his privileges. He willingly cloaked his glory under the veil of the human nature that he took upon himself. It's not that the, that the divine nature stops being divine in order to become human. For example, we recall the account of the transfiguration. We see that the invisible divine nature break through and become visible. And Jesus is transfigured before the eyes of his disciples. But for the most part, Jesus concealed his glory. He emptied himself of his personal prerogative to use all of his attributes. He limited himself. So even though he was the Lord of glory, he emptied himself, not by the subtraction of his divine attributes, but by taking on human nature. He was fully God and yet truly man. What a mystery that is, but it is true. So as we look back at verse 6 and the first part of verse 7, we need to take a moment and think about the glory and magnificence of Christ and what he willingly gave up. And in doing so, it will put our own self, our own sense of self-worth into perspective. His descent continues back to verse 7. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. His taking the form of a servant immediately recalls the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 52, 13, where he is described by God as my servant. And then in Isaiah 53, 12, where he as God's servant poured out his soul to death. He willingly embraced the role of insignificance. He takes the form of a servant. By the end of verse 7, the incarnation is complete. He was born in the likeness of men. But his descent continues. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The eternal Son of God was found in human form. In other words, those who were around him were in the, thought that they were in the presence of a man. And they were. They could then say, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? But how much they missed. This is the Lord who has come down to save. God the Savior became the son of man. 
And he chose to be obedient to the point of death. The immortal chose to die. In doing so, he was obedient to his father's will. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? Paul not only gives us the fact of death, he gives us the mode of death. He not only was obedient to the point of death, it was death on a cross. The final insult, the depth of his humiliation. Our Lord willingly subjected himself to the most cruel means of death known to man. This enhances the fact of obedience to his father. It enhances the fact of his descent and humiliation. For scripture tells us, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The incarnate God becomes a curse. When we meditate on what our Lord did, Although he was in the form of God, he left the glories of heaven. He set aside all that was rightly his. He took on human flesh. He became a servant. The servant of the the Lord brought himself to his own death, down to the cross, down to the curse. And he did it for you. And he did it for me. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, Galatians 3. And how did he do this? By his own consent. He humbled himself to become a willing, perfect sacrifice so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be redeemed, justified, so that we could be one with God. That is why we sing amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Loved ones, this is the mind of Christ. He looked at himself. He looked at his father. He looked at us. And he humbled himself for obedience's sake and for the sinner's sake. He held nothing back. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And he is the one we are to imitate in our fellowship with one another. This is what Paul is teaching us. Union with Christ should lead to imitation of Christ. Consider what Christ-like humility means. Not standing on our so-called rights, but being willing to give them up for others, no matter what the cost. So as we look back, we see the ultimate desire of Paul in verse 2. That his flock would complete my joy, he says, by becoming Christ-like. 
This is the ultimate desire of any true pastor, any true elder, any true shepherd, that the people that he has been charged to oversee, to serve, to protect, to nurture, would become increasingly Christ-like. And that should be desire of every Christian. And how is it attained? How are you to attain Christ-likeness? Only through communion with God in his word and in prayer and in loving, humble service to those he has placed around you today in fellowship. That is the only way. Loved ones, that is the heart of the matter. So as we live in the midst of the world's fear, the fear that has also found its way into many of God's people, may we live as we have been called to live, in unity, serving one another, encouraging one another, loving one another, in the beauty of Christian fellowship found only in the local church. For our good, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the sinner, and for the glory of our Savior. Let each of us look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Let us stand for prayer.